BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old School Grit, New World Ideas, Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. I'll be able to make friends. I'm just trying to make a little money. My job, I just entertain you with educate, teach. Call me, 1-800-743-CBC, or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Darn banks. Here they go again, falling apart and bringing down new swaths of the market with it. Dow sinking 199 points today. S&P losing 0.58%, Nasdaq tumbling 0.52%, although it did finish well off the lows. Sure, you could argue that pinning the bearish tail on the banks is a simplistic explanation. We know the banks have caused enough problems already. We know some of them are still teetering. No need to push them over on the show. But we're beginning to see the effects of our mini banking crisis, and it's making some investors real skittish. Investors like Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan, who wrote in his annual letter that came out this morning that the crisis isn't over and there's more damage to come. We're worried about what's known as liquidity, meaning do we have enough robust markets for companies to raise cash? We're worried about credit, meaning will banks still lend money to companies that want to expand or individuals who want to buy cars or homes? And we're worried about defaults. Defaults on big office building towers, defaults on small businesses, defaults on all sorts of loans that are needed, defaults on the money that you, uh, that you have to buy for just to keep your goods in the store. Yeah, we're worried about all those. And we're worried because the consumer's finally, finally feeling pain and may not be able to do any buying. Where did this palpable sense of fear suddenly come from? The fear that's devastating the stocks of great companies that are hostage to the state of the broader economy? The bond market, that's where, the bond market. We came in today, rates yeah, moving higher, sign of better times to come, pretty calm. There didn't seem to be anything on the horizon that would make people feel that credit could be hard to come by. Just the opposite. Things felt normal, or at least as normal as they can get after a period where three ne'er-do-well banks get destroyed, destroyed by skittish depositors in flight. But then we got the latest job Openings and Labor Turnover Survey, also commonly referred to as the JOLTS numbers, and there were far fewer job openings than we expected. 
That could mean that businesses feel uncertain or they're actually trying to figure out if they should be laying off people. You don't do much hiring when you're in the middle of mass layoffs. We also got negative readings for factory orders and durable goods orders, which seemed to confirm the idea of a softer macro environment. It was virtually a trifecta of weakness when we figured at least one of those numbers would show some strength. Either way, the trio triggered an extreme response in the bond market, which you know is much, much larger than the stock market. As I mentioned, bond yields have been drifting higher all morning. Then, boom, lightning speed. When the downbeat news came out, rates spun lower, going down to levels where we sense that maybe levels we sense that maybe the Fed is already overshot in its attempts to slow the economy and we're heading right into a recession. It's one of the biggest declines we've seen in months. Now, I don't like to play this recession, no recession game. It's something that forces traders to choose a side. There's a camp that says the earnings will fall apart. A camp that says they'll be good only for companies that don't need a strong economy or healthy credit market. And then there's a third group that says strong balance sheets that don't have to fret about access to capital means higher stock prices. Even though I try to be an elder statesman, I'm going to be gratuitously dismissive of all three camps because that's what they deserve. Let's tackle the first camp, the one that says earnings will fall apart. Look, we don't know about the earnings are going to be yet. Earnings season is right around the corner. But the idea that earnings are collapsing simply just doesn't jive with anything anyone said at virtually any company I follow. And I follow a gazillion companies. In reality, things are okay. Sure, there can be a handful of tech companies that will report a weak quarter. Some retailers will certainly miss. And even as J.P. Morgan's diamond let loose that broadside about how the banking crisis is still with us, at the same time that he said interest rates could stay higher for longer, that's a combo that would definitely be a recipe for... The House of Pain. For earnings. But if the earnings were really about to collapse, you would have spotted some evidence of this beyond the decline in stock prices by now. If anything, I believe the collapse of a couple of banks could be equivalent to a 100 basis point rate hike. Yeah, 425s from the Fed in terms of reduced bank lending. I mean, you can impute that big a rate hike from these falling banks. And if that's the case, then, well, frankly, the Fed's mostly done tightening. And if the Fed's done tightening, well, you know what you have to do. You have to be not sell, sell, sell. The economic sense of stocks are where you need to be. They're the ideal place to be if the Fed's finished, actually. Always have been, always will be. So by all means, scoop some of them up tomorrow morning in this cesspool of selling. We did it for CBC's Investing Club, and I got to tell you, we're itching to buy more. Yes, into tomorrow's session. The second camp says the slowdown's upon us. So it's time to buy the defensives. Now, I like these stocks very much. We own farming. Consumer packaged goods plays galore for the travel trust. But just two weeks ago, with the same backdrop minus some jobs wanted number, these very same stocks were being pummeled because they were too defensive. And the business just isn't that bad out there. In the last three days, these safety stocks have had gigantic runs, although not as powerful as the declines in the earth movers and the metal benders were today. It is ridiculous that Wall Street could go from believing that we're going to have a decent to great economy a week ago to think it's now about to fall apart and will pay any price for safety. That's nuts. To be sure, though, we are telling club members that the news tonight about Johnson & Johnson settling with a huge plaintiff contingent for some difficult talc litigation at I think is a reasonable price for all is a huge positive. Witness the stock trading up big tonight after the close. I think we'll get some upgrades. The final camp, the one that says you should buy big capitalization tech stocks because they've had, they have just beautiful balance sheets and don't need to borrow money from banks. Are you kidding me? Are you, are you really going to buy Amazon betting the stock will trade higher on the strength of its balance sheet? If you believe that, then you, my friend, or perhaps I should say my good friend, are a moron. 
This is some new harebrained idea that needs to be locked up with a key and then thrown away. You think that if Amazon imports a bad quarter, will be saved by the balance sheet? Do you really want to buy Google because it's husbanding cash and it's going to make a terrific story now that the banks are in trouble? You know what would make a terrific story at Google other than husbanding and staple guns and personal computers? How about sizable layoffs and a big juicy earnings surprise? Something that seems incapable of delivering. Regardless of what the buyers and sellers are doing, we can't have a recession and an expansion at the same time. It doesn't work that way. You can't be thrown for a three-yard loss and also get a three-yard gain on the same play. You don't strike out over the left center field wall to clear the base. something I learned from my old sports writer days. So here's my advice. If you have overnight gains in the defensive stocks, by all means, take them except for J&J. And be sure to put them right back into work in the industrials that are falling apart, getting tossed in the dumpster. You don't even have to dive in. They're right on the top of the pile of glad bags. They don't even smell yet. And tech. Here's another idea. If if they're doing well, if they have good growth, if you think they can beat the numbers over the long term, then own them. But if you're betting on the big tech stocks because they have rock of Gibraltar balance sheets, you are setting yourself up for disappointment. Bottom line, for over a year, we worried that the economy was just too steaming hot. Now suddenly we're getting data that says it might be cooling down and everybody's freaking out. It's ridiculous. Calm down. Carry on. First fight investor gets through this intact, and that is the real goal of any stock downturn. I want to speak right now to Pete in Texas. Pete. Jim, a Texas Hill Country. Who dat booyah to you, my friend. And a I'm shout liking that whole setup. The whole thing. Lady Tigers. Oh, wow. Wasn't that fantastic? And I love the ratings, too. I care. It's, it's about time that this stuff's happening. Go ahead. Incredible. Hey, Jim, my question today is about Southern Company. Their largest subsidiary, Georgia Power, is completing two massive nuclear plants after years of construction. Yes. It should be good news. They also have a new CEO. Is Southern Company a buy at this time? Uh, I actually like Southern here uh, for exactly what you said. You've got a 4% yield, but the big problems that have been keeping me up at night about that stock are now going to be in the past. And I think you got a real good idea. And again, congratulations to Lady Tigers. Equality is something, isn't it? Let's go to Tommy in Illinois. Tommy! Hey, Jim, good afternoon, and thanks for taking my call. My pleasure. Uh, I, I was waiting on hold, uh, and then I was so happy to see uh, I'm calling about Johnson & Johnson. I've been in the house of talc pain for a while. What do you got to well, what do you, what do you you're got out of the pain. About? Let me tell you something about the House of Pain. In one the night, house it became the house whole new address because it is a tentative settlement with the plaintiffs in the talc litigation for roughly uh, uh, almost $9 billion. But that's OK. It's going to spread out over multiple years. And I have to tell you, this is what all the bears said could not happen. And what all the bulls were saying is it. Uh, well, let's say there's like three bulls. Me, Jeff Marks, worked with me in the investing club. And uh, all right, so that's two. Uh, but we like to talk very much here. Susan in California. Susan. Hey, Jim. Greetings from sunny California. Got a question. I bought PayPal, and as you know, it sank. I got quite a few shares in it. And at one point you said it wouldn't recover for five years. So I'm looking to sell it and get into, you know, 500 stock, you know, at, Okay, well, here, I like the S&P 500 here more, more than PayPal. Here's the problem, Susan. I don't want you to sell it all the way down here because, if anything, they could probably do better at this point. It's, so, it's what we call de-risk. That said, I can't with – look, with Apple, 
doing the, it, what it's doing with buy now, pay later, with, with Square in there. There's too much competition. I say I don't need that agita. All right, today we suddenly got data showing that the economy might be cooling down. And then everyone's freaking out. It's become ridiculous. On the minute tonight, we're continuing our series on value versus value trap and taking a closer look at the car rental space to see if anything could be intriguing there. Then the market has run up since the mid-March close. But where could be headed next? Let's go off the charts to find out. And you've called in on a... I don't even want to tell you. I want you to watch. It's a, it's a, it's a bag. And, and you know what? You just got to stay tuned. So stay with... Kramer! Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Looking for a rewarding, life-changing opportunity that enhances the lives of children in your community? With almost 50 years of experience, Huntington Learning Center is the nation's leading K-12 tutoring and test prep franchise, dedicated to shaping brighter futures for our students and franchisees. Huntington is the top revenue-producing supplemental education franchise in the U.S., and our proven system is the key to success for you and your students. The Huntington Advantage includes low startup cost, turnkey systems, dedicated support teams, national and local marketing support, and multiple revenue streams to help you build a life-enriching and profitable business. No education experience needed. In today's environment, the need for tutoring has never been greater. When you become part of Huntington Learning Center, you're filling an urgent need in the growing $5 billion supplemental education industry. To learn more, visit HuntingtonFranchise.com. Make a meaningful difference. Pursue your dreams of business ownership and be a positive force in your community. Don't wait. Visit HuntingtonFranchise.com today. All week we're focusing on how to tell the difference between a value... House of pleasure. ...and a value trap. The house of pain. Yesterday I told you the refiners look like value traps, while the beaten down automakers, Ford and Jim, might represent genuine value if they can break out of their ruts. Tonight I want to address one of the most confounding groups of all time, the rental car companies. Hertz and Avis, well-known brands, these are iconic. They're widely regarded as the best in the industry. But the industry itself is hostage to endless boom and bust cycles. Witness Hertz filed for bankruptcy in May of 2020, not long after the pandemic took hold. That inconsistent history is the reason why Hertz and Avis sell at, are you ready? Four and three times trailing earnings estimates. Four and three. Those are ridiculously low multiples, some of the lowest I've ever seen. And I don't think they can be justified, at least until you look at the earnings estimates going forward. Hertz is supposed to go from $3.74 per share last year to $2.26 this year. Ava shows a drop from $58 to around $27. Using this year's estimates, both stocks sell for seven times earnings. Still low, but a lot more reasonable. Remember, though, big investment firms shun companies with down earnings years like the play. Even if that down earnings year yields $27. See, the problem with the rental car uh, stocks is that when you look further out, 
the price earnings multiples actually grow larger and larger because Wall Street thinks the earnings are going to go down year after year after year thanks to structural problems with the and of course, let's say the economy and issues with the broader industry. In a way, these two are the exact opposite of growth stocks. They're shrinkage stocks. The best growth names, the NVIDIAs, the Microsofts, they look very expensive on the near-term earnings estimates, but then seem much cheaper when you look at the out years. See, I first discovered NVIDIA a long time ago. It was trading at the time at 50 times the coming year's earnings estimates. But when those numbers actually came out, they were much higher than expected. And in retrospect, the stock had only been trading not at 50 times earnings, but at just 16 times earnings estimates because the company trounced those estimates. Hertz and Avis, they're very cheap on the near-term numbers, but they grow more expensive than the ad years. And this is assuming they can actually make those numbers. And that is a very different definition of value trap. That's why these are being avoided. Now, for the vast majority of my career, I actually never even wasted time with stocks like Hertz and Avis. I mean, there's only so much time in the day. I'd much rather search for the next NVIDIA, as expensive as it seems, than pour it with something like Hertz, which often ends up being a lot more expensive than it looks. And it's not just because I'm worried that an economic downturn will cause vicious price wars between Hertz and Avis, although that's what's happened many a time in a recession. I'm also concerned about the difficult nature of trying to figure out not just the earnings per share, but the value of their fleets. For example, because of supply chain issues, our country wasn't able to build enough new cars to meet demand. So people started buying used cars out of sheer desperation. And nobody has more used cars than Hertz or Avis. And that's why both stocks had those big runs in 2021. So when the analysts try to figure out what these rental car companies are worth, they need to consider the value of their fleets. If used cars are going down in price, then you don't have much to hang your hat on with Hertz and Avis. And by the way, that had been the trajectory of late until recently when used cars broke their losing streak and then started heading up again. But what if there's a new angle, something so crazy, so different, that maybe the whole exercise of valuing the rental car company on a macro basis is wrong? Enter Steve Schur, the former CFO and 30-year veteran of Goldman Sachs, my alma mater. In February of 2022, Schur took the CEO job at Hertz and vowed to turn it into something I never thought it could be, a cyclical stock with growth aspects that cry out for it to trade at a higher price to earnings multiple. Notice I didn't say growth stock, so I don't want to put that mantle on Steve yet. That wouldn't be fair. But I like the way he started his February conference call, saying the trends so far this year are looking very strong. And because of that, he's, quote, confident in the sustainability of our financial performance, the, va- the prospect of long-term value creation, and the ability of Hertz to deliver superior product to our customers on a more efficient cost basis, end quote. He then talked about some very real growth initiatives, including ride-sharing and electric vehicles, as well as the possibility of revitalizing the company's dormant dollar and thrifty brands that used to be so popular. Now, I don't want to give short shrift to Avis here because it is a lot more going for it than people realize. But that's the point. Hertz has been an inconsistent operator for ages, which is why they brought in Steve Schur in order to make things more efficient. Hertz has never been able to trade used cars efficiently. Schur's greatest strength is evaluating risks in trading, whether they be stocks or bonds or cars for that matter. In fact, one of his first acts as CEO was to harvest some of his fleet back when used cars were in highest demand. Schur only cares about return on assets and potential revenue generation. If a car's worth more than as a rental vehicle, he'll rent it out. But if it can make more money selling it as a used car, he'll sell it instead. Right now, Sher told Sarah and Carol uh, and 
Carl on Squawk on the Street uh, that his business this, just this morning is going great guns. So it sounds like he's holding, not trading. And I like that, too, because it was a kind of a nice look about what's a snapshot of how the company's doing intra-quarter. As Sher told me today, when I asked him if he's a terrific fleet risk manager, he said that is what we are. First to recognize the rental car business as an asset management business. It's about managing risk and optimizing utilization and return on assets, end quote. I just love that because it's not about cars anymore. It's not about rental. And, of course, he's not just talking about any cars. Sure's made a commitment to Tesla, bringing in 50,000 electric vehicles, at the same time making a deal with Uber to rent cars to the ride-sharing drivers. Given the coming build-out of charging stations because of the IRA, it seems like a very smart move. But, again, if it pays more to bundle in Teslas and sell them, sure will do it because he's just a trader of assets. That said, if you want to buy Hertz, you need to have a couple of strong beliefs. Well, you, first, got to believe that people will still want to travel in a downturn, and it'll be cheaper to rent a car than to buy one, especially with higher interest rates. You also have to believe that used cars won't plummet in value because that would mean Hertz is, a, is too long an asset that won't hold up. And you have to believe the corporate accounts will continue to hit the road and not just zoom it in if times get tougher. Oh, and yeah, you have to believe that we won't have a hard landing because if we get a real recession, the earnings estimates will end up being way too high for both Avis and Hertz. Bottom line here, Assuming you think the Fed can engineer a soft landing, it's not the craziest thing in the world to bet that Hertz can be run def- differently, more efficiently, with a smart risk manager at the helm rather than just a car rental guy. And that just maybe makes the stock worth owning here. Although, of course, again, if you think we're headed for a bad recession, all these ultra-low mobile stocks are just as untouchable as they've always been. Bad Money is back after the break. Coming up, with the first quarter in the books, where do the markets go from here? Check the charts with Kramer. Tackle the technicals, next. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Now that we've turned the page on the first quarter and earnings season is right on the horizon, what do we do with the market? I know I dismissed the three camps that took action today, but we still we got to figure out what the heck is going on, right? Now, we've been on a wild ride ever since the averages appeared at bottom nearly six months ago, and March was particularly crazy. 
With a series of bank runs, knocking us off our feet before the market rebattled like crazy and an assumption that a mini financial crisis might actually prevent the Federal Reserve from raising interest rates too aggressively, and that's what we've been most worried about. At this point, we've run up pretty substantially from the mid-March lows. So what's next? How do we get a read on this market when we aren't so sure about how what whether the economy is really cooling or not, or how much damage will take place from higher oil prices or the mini bank crisis, or how bad a potential recession might be. If we even get a recession, oh boy, we got a whole lot of unknowns to unpack here. At moments like these, you know what it does pay, you know what we do, particularly when it comes to Tuesdays, is that it makes sense to take a step back and approach things from a more quantitative direction rather than pounding our heads against the wall trying to figure out the qualitative stuff. And that's why tonight we are indeed going off the charts with Carolyn Baroden. She's a brilliant technician who's teaching at IM Academy SFX. That's the Stocks and Futures Academy. You can also find her, by the way, and I love this new Twitter handle, uh, at Queen of Fibs. That's right, Queen of Fibs, because she can give us that empirical read on the market and her recent track records. Excellent. Do you know that roughly two months ago, Broden warned us that the incredible January rally in the SP 500 would run out of steam by mid to late February? She recommended pulling in your horns for the next few weeks. That turned out to be a tremendous call as things turned real ugly from mid February through mid March. So, what does she see going forward? All right, I want you to take a look at the daily chart of the SP 500. Broden's always measuring past moves, then running them through the prism of Fibonacci ratios. That's a key series of numbers that repeats over and over again in nature. They show up in crazy as snail shells and pine cones. And for some bizarre reason, indeed, the stock market. Now, I have no idea why that's the case, but it's undeniable that this method can help identify important levels where security is likely to change course. Remember, we want predictive. We don't want anything that just says, ah, oh, it already changed course. Specifically, Broden does this with both the price on the y-axis and time on the x-axis, trying to measure both the scale and the duration of potential moves. For example, in the S&P bottom on March 13, uh, there was a whole confluence of Fibonacci timing cycles right here. And they came due on the 13th and 14th. At the same time, the market had been plunging straight down into some key support levels. When you get that kind of combination, it tells technicians like Broden that we could potentially get a reversal to the upside. Plus, Broden points out we also had a healthy cluster of Fibonacci support levels on the price side, running from 3796 to 3811. This, well, what a, this was just such a perfect Fibonacci pivot. And that's where the S&P eventually found its intraday floor on the 13th. One more point for good measure. In the previous decline over the course of February, the S&P dropped 267 points. All right. Sometimes these moves tend to repeat themselves in scale. It's a concept that charters call symmetry. Sure enough, when the S&P bottomed last month, the peak to trough decline ended up being very similar, 269 points. In response, we caught a healthy rally over the past, past few weeks. It's picture perfect. So why bring up the past? Because Broden wants you to be able to anticipate this kind of reversal in the future. So I want you to check out this, the daily chart of the S&P 500, okay? And that's more geared to where we are right now. At this point, Broden thinks the market has extended itself on the upside, meaning it's in a place where we need to start watching for a potential pullback, maybe even the one that started today. 
Unfortunately, this is happening at a lousy time, too. Broden points out that the S&P has a cluster of Fibonacci time cycles coming due between today and tomorrow. She always approaches these cycles with a plus or minus a day perspective, meaning they're saying that the S&P could make a near-term high somewhere from yesterday through Thursday. Again, maybe it already happened, and today's reversal was the first session of new decline. That's what I felt all day when I was going back and forth with their piece. Now, at this point, Broden wants to watch the pullback and wait for new buying opportunities. Why? Because even though she's anticipating a near-term reversal, she thinks the overall picture in this chart is actually pretty darn bullish. The S&P is trading above its 200-day and its 50-day SMAs, okay, the moving averages, which is really good news. See where that is? It's above that. Uh, Plus, Broden also likes to watch both the 5-day and the 13-day exponential moving averages when the shorter one crosses above the longer one. That's her favorite buy signal. Right now, and see that's the blue going above the red? So right now, that 5- and 13-day exponential moving average combo is currently definitely in buy mode. So from her perspective, the longer-term setup is good, but short-term Broden says you might need to brace yourself for a pullback, possibly one that's similar in size to the 269-point bruising we got in the first half of March. But, in a very big but here, once we get through this pullback, Broden thinks the S&P 500 could head toward 4,300 longer term. And I was talking about this with Carl uh, Quintanilla just this morning. You know that this could be explosive if we got through that level. Uh, the one thing that would make her feel less bullish, though, is if the S&P breaks down so hard that it falls through the floor of support that is at 3,800. It's been pretty good support. That's down only three, uh, 300 points from here. Bottom line, the charts interpreted by Carolyn Broden suggest the S&P 500 is due for a pullback this week. And it could be a nasty one, of which we saw some today, right? But long term, she's betting that any weakness here will prove to be a buying opportunity. Not a selling opportunity. She's not calling for this at the beginning of something that's really big and bad. And uh, we're taking action for the investment club in close correlation to what Broden is suggesting could happen with her Fibonacci setup. Let's go to Moose in Texas. Moose! Hey, Jimmy Chill, how you doing? Man, I've been chilling. I was having a little, uh, my wife's uh, phosphoro mescal with my Jimmy Chill glass with my daughter the other day. And I was definitely chill. What's happening? Fantastic. Hey, I want to know what you think about Southwest Airlines. There's a oh, huge- I, I opine on Southwest here today. I got to tell you something, Moose. If you don't mind my calling you Moose, Moose. Uh, I was upset because I think Southwest is best in show, but there it is just kind of hanging around 31. It doesn't seem like they have their costs under control. Uh, It doesn't seem like that they're the outstanding Southwest that I remember. And we got to get them back on the show and really figure out what's going on, Moose, because you're darn right. It ain't working. It just ain't working. Let's go to Xander in North Carolina or Xander. Xander, Xander in North Carolina. Hi, how are you, Jim? I am good, Xander. How are you? I'm good. I want to ask you about Netflix. So I know about last year in June, it was about $175 a share. And now it's risen all the way to, correct me if I'm wrong, but $345 a share. Um, Do you think it's still a buy or would you rate it more of like a hold sell kind of stock? Okay. I uh, am a big believer in Netflix. I think they're doing a lot of things right. I think they've figured out how to do streaming. They've figured out how to do commercials. The Canadian test apparently is going extremely well. So I am a believer in Netflix here, and I think it's a buy. And I have for some time, ever since they came out of their funk, and we saw that they really know how to do streaming better than anybody. Now we're going to go to John in California. John, 
Jimmy, how are you? I love the show. Oh, thanks, Johnny. What's shaking? Listen, I want to ask you about a company that's been on fire. I think they're doing everything right. Their stock's gone from 2000 went down to about 600 Now it's back up to 1300 within a year span. They're hot, but nobody's talking about them. Mercado Libre. Oh, my God. No, no, you're not. You're wrong. Au contraire, mon frere. We did a piece talking about the possible winners of this year. And we had the Airbnb in it. And we had the uh, Etsy in it. And we had Mercado Libre. And it is up 45% since we nailed it. And you know what? It's not done. But I got to tell you, John in California, he got horse sense for even bringing it up. Yeah! The charges are driven by Callum Rhodes, just the SP 500 is due for what might be a nasty pullback this week. I don't know. Longer term, she's betting that any week this year could be a buy, 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 buy. much more mad money head. SoFi's been beaten down with the rest of the banks. You talk, you call me about this every day. So what? You need my take. You better stick with us. Now, Barbara Sandler came out with a teen survey highlighting a host of impressive, impressive insights. So what do you need to know about what the teens are doing with their dough? I'm digging into the port and all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of the lightning round. So stay with Jimmy Chill Kramer. Ever since the mini banking crisis began nearly four weeks ago, all things financial have been obliterated. But while most of them are indeed too risky to own, some of them are worth buying because they never should have been hit hard. Anyway, remember, there are other banks in this country besides J.P. Morgan, for heaven's sake. And tonight I've got another one, not to be confused with J.P. Morgan. It's a little out there. It's SoFi Technologies, which got its start as a digital lender focused on student loans, but has since expanded to consumer banking with a very young deposit base. Full disclosure, SoFi is a name we've recommended before here, but it has been a real disappointment. As much as I like CEO Anthony Noda, I know him all the way back from when I brought the street.com public in, well, many moons ago, uh, I, I am sold on the concept. The fact is, the stock's been stuck in the mid-single digits for the past year, and every time it starts rallying, though, these moves always seem to fizzle out. It doesn't help that SoFi came public via a SPAC merger. You know how we feel about SPACs here. And if you got in on that SPAC at the beginning, you're down more than 40% here. These guys did have the misfortune of coming public late in the SPAC boom. Then within less than a year, the Fed declared war on inflation, at which point unprofitable growth stocks like SoFi went out of style indeed on the Wall Street runway of the fashion show. But what makes me want to recommend it now then? Because I think SoFi could emerge from the current bank shakeup in a much stronger position relative to the competition. When the company reported its most recent quarter at the end of January, they delivered great results, 58% revenue growth, up from 51% the previous quarter. And they came much closer to breaking even on the earnings front. And if you look at the earnings for interest, taxes, appreciation, and amortization, they put up a phenomenally better than expected number. At the same time, their full-year earnings forecast was pretty encouraging, which is why the stock jumped 12.5% in response. Although... In true SoFi fashion, at this point, it's now given back nearly all of those gains thanks to the bank panic. One more positive here. As a big student lender, SoFi's been hit hard by the Biden administration's moratorium on student loan repayments. That's now being challenged in the Supreme Court, though. And it's extremely likely that the Supremes will strike it down, instantly making SoFi more profitable. And if you like the story, you probably want to get in ahead of a potential court ruling. So before Silicon Valley Bank went under, the story was pretty compelling. 
But then we got three bank runs in a row, and the stock market turned against all the smaller banks, including SoFi. However, SoFi is a lot less likely to see the kind of deposit flight that the shakier regional banks have been experiencing. Remember, that deposit flight's the issue, not credit, but deposit flight. In fact, I think they're in a great position when it comes to their whole deposit base. See, remember, the problem with the regionals is that their businesses uh, with lots of money are pulling their cash and moving into safer banks, again, like this J.P. Morgan situation, because they don't want to get wiped out in the event of a bank run, given that the FDIC only insures $250,000. But SoFi's customer base looks nothing like that. They're a retail bank. They recently disclosed that over 90% of their deposits are fully insured. These guys cater to younger people. Younger people tend not to have boatloads of money. Even better, about two weeks ago, SoFi announced that its checking and savings members can protect their deposits with access to up to $2 million worth of FDIC insurance by using something they call the SoFi FDIC Insurance Network. This is a partnership they've set up with multiple other banks to effectively spread out large deposits to make sure they can get fully insured beyond the $250,000 cap. Plus, unlike traditional banks, SoFi is entirely digital, which allows management to monitor the deposits in real time, making them less vulnerable to an SVB-style bank run. But don't take it from me. Two weeks ago, CEO Anthony Noto presented at the Bank of America Electronics Payments Symposium, where he said he expects SoFi to see roughly the same level of deposit inflows as it has for the past few quarters, which is pretty good, given that the deposits grew by $2.3 billion last quarter and the same amount in the quarter before that. The mini-bank crisis doesn't seem to have hurt them at all. What else? Ever since Silicon Valley Bank went under, Wall Street's been focused on banks' bond holdings. SVB went under in part because they had huge unrealized losses in their bond portfolio. We now know these unrealized losses can become very, very, very real, very, very fast if there's a run and the bank's forced to sell its bonds at a loss. Sound familiar, Silicon Valley Bank? Rather than holding them to maturity, HTM, and getting all of their money back. So... Does SoFi have any problems here? Not that I can see. First, SoFi's investments are mostly loans, not securities. In fact, securities only account for roughly 3% of their assets. More importantly, SoFi uses something called fair value accounting for the loans that underwrite, which means the bank recognizes the change in the value of loans on a quarterly basis. And those changes flow right through the income statement. That's very conservative. They're not hiding the ball here. And if that weren't enough, SoFi also tries to hedge 100% of the interest rate risk on its loans. Oh, I wish everybody else had. This is just a much better situation than we're seeing at so many of the regional banks. Hey, figures. Anything you know is an investment banker from way back. He always understood risk management from when, from my, when I first time I met him. There are other things I like about SoFi, too. For example, insider buying. On March 10th and March 16th, Anthony Noto bought a combined 225,000 shares for roughly $1.2 million. Okay, not a huge number, but I like that he stepped in and did some buying when the stock got knocked down to five bucks. By the way, the last time Noto bought his own stock, he purchased more than 1.6 million shares at $4 back in December, $4 and change. And that worked out pretty well for anyone who tried to piggyback off him. Clearly, he's got a lot of conviction or guts, or both. Hey, speaking of commission, just yesterday, SoFi announced that it's buying Wyndham Capital Management, the in-house lending arm of Time and Leisure, which is the timeshare business formerly known as Wyndham Destinations that I just talked about last week. This deal is intended to beef up their mortgage lending operation, and it will. Now, we don't know the price yet, but I like that SoFi is playing offense at a time when so many banks are husbanding cash because they're absolutely terrified. It's just one more incremental reason to think that SoFi could come out of this situation in a very solid position. So here's the bottom line. I know SoFi hasn't worked in the past, and it, 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 I carry it around like a steamer trunk. 
But the fact is the stock's been knocked all the way down to five bucks and change. The fundamentals seem strong and may be getting stronger. And you're getting it at a discount here thanks to the mini banking crisis, even though it's much, much less vulnerable than the vast majority of the small to medium-sized business uh, banks in our country. I think you have to be patient with this one, though. But long-term, I'm betting Nodos get getting this one right and make good money for both himself and his shareholders. Mad Money is back after the break. Coming up, what's in your mind, Kramerica? Give us a call. The lightning round is storming the NYSE. Next. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Ski? Guys, over the lightning round, because we're start with Nick in New Jersey. Nick! Nick, booyah, Jim! It is Nick from New Jersey calling about AEHR. Air test systems. Love the story, love the stock. I'm buying the pullback. What do you think? Okay, that's DRAM. I do prefer, I mean, look, Micron just had an okay quarter. I'm not going to go against your idea. I'm not going to, I'll tell you why, because you obviously done some research, and I do think they did have, they've been having a good year. That's okay. Let's go to Kurt in Tennessee. Kurt. Hey, Kramer, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you. How about you? Thank you for asking. Good. I was calling about um, ticker symbol S-E-D-G. Solar Edge. We have worked so much on these solar stocks. Okay, so first solar, okay. Solar Edge, okay. Sunrun, not so great. I like Enphase. There you go. Let's go to Terry in Colorado. Terry. Yeah. Terry. Hello, sir. How, how are you? I am good. Thank you for asking. How about you? Fantastic. Mr. Kramer, thank you for taking my call. You have a fabulous show. I'm watching all the time. Sir, my question is ExxonMobil. Okay, I see your ExxonMobil, and I raise you to Pioneer, PXD. I like the yield better, and I like Scott Sheffield, who, by the way, Bloomberg Credit is saying that there would be an OPEC cut. So even more of a reason why to buy PXD. Let's go to Scott in New Jersey. Scott, a lot of Jersey tonight. Scott. Hey, Jim. Baba booyah. Want to get your thoughts on AMPX? I'm not recommending any of these lithium-related stocks unless they're making money, which means I'm recommending none of them. Let's go to Dan in Florida. Dan, bring back Dan on Twitter. There's a cause. I enjoy the show. Me too. What's up? My question is on Goldman Sachs, which has an earnings call in about two weeks. I've owned it for five years, and it's far off its 2021 peak of 426 a share. Should I sell some of my positions? No, no, no. I like the stock of Goldman Sachs here. Here's what I'm thinking about Goldman. Incredibly low price earnings mobile. Nothing's going right in this whole industry. They're not doing any banking. If we see that they make money at this environment and they take the losses, take the write downs, get out of retail, then we're going to like the stock of Goldman Sachs. Let's go to Darwin. I love this stuff in college. Darwin in California. Darwin. Booyah, Jim. San Bernardino, California. Calling yeah, you regarding gaming and leisure incorporated. Ticker single G I P I. Now we're starting to talk about stock that um you know, Leon Cooper introduced me to. Uh, look, I think that there's only one of these companies I want to own is Win. Chapel Trust owns it. I like the, I like Boston. I like I like Washington. I like uh, I like Macau. Let's go to Jared in Colorado. Jared. 
Oh, what's happening, Jim? I'm a big fan. Thanks for taking my call, Got to go to Jared. All right, what's happening? I'm looking for a Ready Capital Corporation, ticker symbol RC. What you feeling about no, that? No, okay, okay, this is what's known as a real estate financing small business enterprise loan company, of which I have studiously said no to every single one since the show began. And guess what? I've been right. Now we're going to go to Jim in Colorado. Jim! Hey, Jim, a big Colorado Springs. Bob, Bob, booyah to you. Thanks well, for we, how much do we love that guys. show, the Air Force Academy show? Have us back there. We loved it there, 7,000 feet, by the way. What's going on? Hey, Jim, with the current situation in regional banks, what are your thoughts? And uh, would you be a buyer of uh, Alley Financial Services? No a- need to be a buyer of Alley. No need. No need. There's just no need. Why stick your head in the lion's den? It's just not worth it. I need to go to John in Florida right now. John. Hey, Jim, long-time listener, first-time caller, and uh, club member. Thanks for all you and your team do. Fantastic. Uh, For the current quarter, this company has a year-over-year earnings growth estimate of 22%, but that falls off in subsequent quarters. It currently has a mean target price of $428. With the market overbought, should I still buy more ahead of the earnings announcement for McKesson? McKesson is a charm stock. The whole group is. Mercer's Bergen, even Cardinal's gotten it together now. I got no flies on McKesson, none. I just say it's fine and stay in it. One more. I'm not done. Let's take one more. Let's go to Ethan in Massachusetts. Ethan. Hey, Jimmy. I'm a college student from Westfield State University, and I wanted to ask you your thoughts on Endeavor Group Holdings. Do you think they're a good buy now that they've acquired the WWE? Right, this is a tough question for me because I, they are my agent, uh, and I don't think it's actually fair for, for me to opine on it because I have a close business relationship with the company. I disclosed that. I talked a lot about it yesterday, the deal that they made. But it's, I just am I'm comfortable talking about a company that I have a business relationship with. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. make investment decisions about what's hot unless you know what younger people are thinking, which means if you're over the age of 25, you need Piper Sandler's semi-annual Taking Stock with Teen survey that came out this very morning. Based on a survey of 5,690 teenagers, it's a cornucopia of great ideas. Wall Street's research has its blind spots. They tend not to watch pro wrestling, so they can't evaluate the Endeavor WWE deal. They don't shop much at Burlington or Dollar Tree, so they can't make a judgment about the off-price change. They never trust them on Ollie's. But the biggest blind spot, what the next generation likes, genuine young people, which is a huge problem because if you can figure out what the kids want, you can make some fabulous long-term investments. When I examined this Piper survey, I saw some new trends that just shocked me. Take, for example, the report that teens are once again increasing their use of of Instagram, of all things. I thought that went out of style. This time it's done at the expense of Snapchat. There's been a 300 basis point uptick in Instagram use. Now, what does that say about the possibility of an upside surprise from none other than Meta, the parent company, especially considering all the people it's fired, members of the year of efficiency? Or how about the fact that 
Etsy's moving up the teen ladder, becoming the sixth most popular website for upper income teens. The Piper Report says the site hadn't even been mentioned since the spring of 2021. Hey, by the way, it's Depop Division is now number nine on the shopping list. Global brands the kids are flocking to. How about Nike and Lululemon holding in at the top of the list? But Decker's Uggs and Hoka brands are doing quite well. And you cannot miss the appearance of On Holding and its On Running shoe. What a horse that's turned out to be. Now, we've respected ELF, Elf Beauty, for a long time. And we own Estee Lauder for the Chapel Trust. I feel great about both of them after checking the teen comments from the survey. Two winners there. The survey extends to food, too, where we have verification that Campbell's goldfish is indeed the favorite snack. Something I wanted to be sure of after speaking to CEO Mark Klaus in the wake of the most recent terrific quarter. We rec- just recommended General Mills the other day because of its blue buffalo pet foods. But we found out this morning that its Nature Valley brand is a teen favorite. You know, I always say I own, don't trade. And that's about Apple. And the survey validates that view, not just on the iPhone, with, by the way, a, a dominant, dominant 87% ownership. That's a record high. And the watch, which has an unassailable lead. Next is Rolex. But I didn't realize how popular Apple's pay had become. 39% penetration. Finally, they still love the Amazon site as well. And as I quote, it dominates the online shopping mindshare, end quote. Well, Netflix still has teens' daily video consumption by a it's leading by a wide margin. We think that teens are fickle, right? But that's simply not true. In reality, your teen years are when you start, you know, your tastes start to fossilize. They are loyal to a fault unless someone comes up with something fresh and new to displace the old. Hence why an Under Armour has fallen off the charts as others like On and Hoku have come on strong. Teens spend more than we think, and their collective shopping does indeed move the needle. Now, we often make sport of Wall Street research on the show, but this survey stands out as something that really opens our eyes. And we do thank Piper Sandler for all the work they do to produce a truly discerning and market-moving product. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. And I promise you, i just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. Last call starts now. 